Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, where we develop educational resources for motivated students, including textbooks, an online school, in-person learning centers, and a variety of online applications. We build the tools we wish we had when we were students. Welcome to Aftermath, where we talk to fascinating people in and around the STEM world about where they've been, where they are now, and how their passion for math helped them get there. I'm your host, Richard Russick. My guest today is Kathy O'Neill. Math people of our generation have, broadly speaking, been mainly pulled into academia, the financial world, dot-coms, and occasionally into building their own organizations. Kathy has done all of these, and in her spare time, she's also a successful writer. She's a well-known blogger at mathbabe.org, and her recent book, Weapons of Math Destruction, was long-listed for a National Book Award. Today, Kathy will discuss the path she took through the world of mathematics and how it shaped the writing that she's doing now. You'll hear her talk about how she first became passionate about math in grade school, where she discovered its value as a social activity and why she isn't the biggest fan of math competitions. She discusses her experiences in academia after receiving her Ph.D. from Harvard, working at an investment firm, D.E. Shaw, and joining an Internet startup, and how she came to realize that the job she really wanted was the one she had to make for herself. You'll learn about the difficult but ultimately rewarding process of writing Weapons of Math Destruction, which examines how algorithms and big data can, if not used responsibly, end up reinforcing discrimination and inequality. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start with your education. Now, a number of my guests have pointed at math competitions as a starting point for them, and I think I first became aware of your blog when someone pointed me at a post of yours about your strong feelings about math contests. I'd like to hear your background on how you got into math um, your, and how you stayed into math. Um, sure. Um, yeah, so I guess it's important to... Uh, to, to start out with the fact that both of my parents are mathematicians. Um, and I think that really primed me for the concept of being a mathematician as a job. Mm -hmm. um, my mom um, was a an undergrad at MIT. That's where my parents met. And then she got her PhD um, in, at Harvard in applied math. My father got his PhD um, at Rockefeller University back when they had math. Um, in, in, in number theory with Jean Calarota, who that later went to MIT. So I, I grew up in a kind of mathy environment. Like, you know, Erdish was a guest in my house when I was little. Oh, wow. um, I met, you know, Joel Spencer when I was three. Like there was like part of, that was part of my life. Um, so it, nature versus nurture, we can't tell anything from you. Nah, correct, correct. <laughs> um, having said that, like I also really was, you know, independent of that, very personally interested in prime numbers from a very early age. Um, and I, my first memory of really being interested in num prime numbers came from playing with spirographs when I was little and like noticing periodicities. Um, uh, I don't know if you remember what spirographs are. Oh, but... yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm that <laughs> I old. I remember <laughs> thinking that there was a two and a three inside six, you know, that they, they kind of like lived there and yeah. feeling like per prime numbers had personalities and stuff. Um, but I would do want to answer your question about about math competitions. Mm -hmm. I later went, um, you know, 
I went to school, obviously, and they were math competitions in school, and I wasn't very good at them. And I, you know, they made me feel bad, to be honest, because I was like, oh, these are very fast and they seem tricky and, and clever and I don't feel clever. Um, how old and, were and you? It wasn't... The... Sorry, how old were you at that point? Were I you... mean, I remember, I mean, I think the first time I interacted with a math competition when I was probably eighth grade, okay. maybe seventh grade. It, it wasn't like I, I'm old. So like I'm 46, like I'm I graduated from college. <laughs> it, yeah. What you're 47. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I graduated from call, like from high school in 1990. So like there, there's lots of math competitions nowadays that didn't exist when I was going through school or maybe they existed, but not at my school, even though I was like at Lexington high school in Massachusetts, which was pretty connected. Um, but the, the short version is that like when I did interact with them, especially in high school, I was on the math team. Um, it wasn't a particularly positive experience. It was um, defeating, and it, and it and it. I think I was lucky um, because I knew that math was cool um, aside from math competitions. That like, in particular, math doesn't care how fast you are, and math isn't really based on cleverness, um, and it's not a competition, and it's not one you know every man for himself. It's much much more collaborative than that. So I honestly, I think math competitions are essentially wrongheaded and I think they give people the wrong idea about math. And having said all that, I will add that I met a bunch of cool nerds through math competitions and it eventually got me to the math camp I went to, Hampshire College Summer Studies in Math, which w changed my life. And, and so I'm not saying there was nothing that good, good that came out of math competitions, but I definitely feel like if I were in charge of math competitions, I would remove the competition part of them and just have like a bunch of fun nerds do math together. So how, how should this be done? Like I, I, I don't feel quite as strongly as you do about math competitions on the negative side, but I do agree with you about a lot, all the negatives that you just stated. I think there's some, there, there are more positives, but the thing I would like to see exist in the world are more, avenues through which students can self-identify as being part of the math crowd and not identify doing well in math competitions equals being a math person or being good at mathematics. Like That's something I would like to eliminate, but how do we get that done at scale? Yeah, I mean, you're asking me not just to identify a problem, but solve a problem, and yeah. it's a lot easier to identify problems than it is to solve problems. Yes. Um, I think, you know, just at, at a very, very sort of superficial level, I think one of the things that was the most um, harm, harmful about the experience I had, and it wasn't, I, as I said, I, I want to make it clear that it wasn't entirely harmful, and mm -hmm. I still went to it, um, was just this idea that unless you won, you, you weren't good at math, you know, like unless you got to the next level or, or won altogether, like it was very like hierarchical. Um, and I just feel like, why, why, why do we have to, like, why can't we, I mean, just, just a very obvious thing to do is just like have the competitions and then just be like, yeah, you guys did great. Like, why does it have to be a, a number, a score? Um, why does it have to be a ranking? Like, I'm not saying that there aren't correct or incorrect, um, answers. Sure. Like you can find out what you got right, what you got wrong and learn from your mistakes. And that's the fun part about math. Um, it's just that it always has to be quantified to the point of, of this kind of bizarre artificial hierarchy. So sure. I just, I'm just like, 
just tell us what we got right or wrong. And, you know, the, don't score us. That would be an interesting experiment to run, to, to try to establish a competition with competition, an event with yeah. this sort of ethos. Because, I mean, there are things like math circles and uh, the Julia Robinson math festivals and these sorts of things. Uh, math Counts is building up a club pro or has built a pl club program uh, for schools to participate in that is not competition based. Um, but they, they don't have nearly the take up or, you know, the kind of obsession that the kids have around the competitions and I, I i don't know what to point at for that it might just be we need more of these other sorts of things more sorts of avenues um to to see how that how that goes well here's uh, another confession related related to that point that you just made and by the way i've taught at the math circle in boston a bunch of times i'm, I'm a fan of math circles that is much closer to the the idea i have of just doing math together at least my experience of it um, but my confession is that like I, as a parent, I am not enrolling my kids in either math circles or math competitions. I'm not telling them to go do math team. I'm just, and I do think that one of the reasons you see pick up or take up of like competitions versus non-competitions is because of parents. Like, let's be honest. There's a bunch of parents who are like, I want you to really prove that you're smart to me. Is that and the I'm, college admissions things that's a, that's the problem? Absolutely. And yeah. I speak I speak as a parent of three boys. One of them is the first year <clears throat> in college, one of them's a junior in high school, and one of them's in fifth grade. And I'm just like, Oh, I guess if I had been one of those parents, like my sixteen year old who's a junior in high school would have a lot more like um a lot more essays to write, you know, a lot more topics to write in his college essays. Like there's so many things about applying to college that is horrible. Um, yes. and this idea of like creating, um, creating a academic interest that is disingenuous just drives me absolutely nuts. Um, but that's, that is how you win that game. And it is absolutely a game. And so like, I think a lot of other parents are like, yeah, you're going to be in math on math team and you're going to win. And like, I'm just not willing to do that as a parent. I wasn't willing to do that as a, as a student. So talk a little bit about Hampshire. I mean, Hampshire is a very different than a math competition. How did that experience turn? I don't know if turn you around is the right way to, because you were already on the path, but you mentioned it turned it was, me on. It was yeah. like the most amazing, wonderful experience because it was everything I was looking for without even really being able to articulate what I was looking for because it was not graded. It was not a comp competition. It was very, very um, explicitly a community um, where we had ethics and we were all in love with math. And we learned, I learned that first summer when I went, when I was like 14, 15, turning 15, I learned how to solve the Rubik's cube using group theory. Like I came home and I was like, just so in love um, with these ideas and this new kind of superpower I had. Um, and it just felt like, that's it. I'm a math, I'm a mathematician. I felt like that gave me the, an identity. It wasn't just learning. It was like an I, actual identity. And that's also, where, by the way, where I got my, my name's Math Babe. Like one of the things about my life up to the point of math, math camp of Hampshire was um, I was this like awkward, overweight, four-eyed nerd girl. Um, and I was like largely excluded from any kind of concept of like the popular kids or dating or mm -hmm. um, even like imagining myself as a sexual person. And then I got to math camp and there were like 50 boys and 
10 girls and like the ratio was great and i was like actually one of the most wait, social... wait, wait. great for you maybe <laughs> yes great for me. like dude yes we do live in our own little bubbles you know and that was my bubble and i was like this is amazing and like i have a crush on all these boys and they seem to acknowledge my existence as a girl and i'm not saying like i had a boyfriend i didn't mm -hmm. but i just reckon it was an identity thing it was like oh my god i am a i'm actually a girl here i'm not just like this excluded other um and, and it made me feel like a completely different person it was exciting interesting i think this is uh so we run a bridge to enter advanced mathematics uh, summer program that's the, the nonprofit aops initiative runs for inner city students from underserved communities in New York City and Los Angeles. And one of the first things we do in our first week working with the kids is focus a lot on these identity issues and to get them to identify themselves, like you just said, as, as a mathematician, as a part of this community that they did not know existed before encountering us. So it was interesting to hear you describe that happening you know, in a very you know, you came from Lexington High School, which you would think has this sort of rich culture. But these, even the top tier high schools, a lot of them do not have this sort of high, uh, culture that you're going to encounter at Hampshire and then in academia and then in the rest of your life beyond. You made a... You, yeah, I'll say, I'll just jump ahead. in and say mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, the bad news in Lexington High School was like, it was a high school culture controlled by, you know, the the jocks mm -hmm. you know the, the the cheerleaders and the jocks like every high school yep. but the uh, the good news about lexington high school was it, there was also a, a space for nerds you know so i had it i already had an identity as a nerd but it wasn't a dating identity it wasn't like a sexual identity whatsoever um and it was it was more of a an intellectual identity so i was allowed that and i think it's really important to to say that out loud because I'm sure there's plenty of high schools where you're not even allowed that. And even if you're allowed it, it's a negative label instead of a, a positive label. Like there's... Right, I think it was more like a neutral label. Okay. I wouldn't say it was exactly positive, but it, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't horribly negative, and that's really important. Yeah, I mean, neutral is great. Yeah. Uh, you made an interesting comment when you were just talking about Hampshire. You said that you had a community that had ethics. That's an had ethics. That's an yeah. interesting phrase to use. What can you expound on that? Well, I mean, it, it's very, it's, you know, it's run and still is run by David Kelly, um, who's like a hippie, you know, and Hampshire College was explicitly built by hippies with the idea that like, you shouldn't have grades and it should be like a social um, concept in the sense of like, what is good for the public, what is good for humanity type thing of education. It's, a, it's sort of a a philosophy of education that was definitely brought to the camp and the junior staff and the senior staff who get hired are almost all like alumni of the, the camp itself. So they all are buying into it. So it's a little bit of a cult, if you will, but it's a cult where math is beautiful and we do not compete. We, and, and we explicitly like say, if you're so smart, why don't you explain it to us? Why don't you help us? Why don't you come up with better questions? Like it's not, we're not here to like, just witness somebody else being br right. a brilliant person. It's much more of a, like, how do you contribute to the community? So you've also written about making math enrichment less elitist. And uh, obviously Hampshire and all the programs that I've been involved in, and to some extent AOPS, uh, you might, I, I would use a different word than elitist because the 
elite of this country do not participate in math competitions. But I agree with the general sentiment you're you're complaining about there. And I confess AOPS is party, part of the problem here. AOPS and other organizations have given students with access tools they need to accelerate and deepen their educations, but those tools aren't available in many schools to students who don't know to look for them. Uh, this is another one of those problems that are easy, easier to identify than solve, but do you have any ideas on how, what levers we might pull to try to expand the circle so that the experience you had at Hampshire can be available to many more students? Well, first I'll say that it's, you know, there's some kinds of inequalities where you're like, you know, the elite get too much. Um, and there's other kinds of inequalities where you're like, actually, everybody deserves as much as they get. And I would be with in the second category for math, you know, so it's not like I want um, lucky kids to have less access. I just want more kids to have access um, to this beautiful subject. And I'll also say that, like, you know, the, the children of today are absolutely blessed and lucky uh, for the the Internet. I mean, like the Khan Academy. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys have an enormous online presence. I think I know yeah. about it. Like you guys have this this conversation board. I don't know how you call it. Yeah, I'm yeah, such community. an old person. Yeah. I'm like dating myself. <laughs> but like I know because I have friend, math friends who are ner like are teenagers and they tell me about you. Um, so it's it's a community, a much more global community than it was when I was a kid. Like when I was a teenager, like it really was elitist. And oh, interesting. To the extent that there are, you know, you told me about the summer program. I know there's quite a few summer programs that are making it more accessible in the summer for 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 kids that have less, typically less access um, and less privilege. That's wonderful, obviously. Um, and I actually I went to give a talk at this summer at City College for like a Beam conference, like Beam camp, which was Excellent. great. Um, and I'm just so into that. Like, I think that's wonderful. But I also say like year round, just the access that they have online and all the tools like demos is great. Like I, I really am impressed with what you can actually do in your own bedroom with a computer and Wi-Fi. So now then it becomes a question of like who has a computer and Wi-Fi in the time or, um, who, gets or who gets introduced. That's right. And that's you know, it's, they have to, I mean, you have to know to go there and yeah. that's, that's real, a real piece of information, but it's not impossible to figure out. I'm just saying like, it's all, it's all relative. And I think that the access now is much, much better than it was when I grew up and not to say that we're done and we can stop right. thinking about this, but I do think we've made progress. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, so let's move on to college. You go into college, you're clearly, I'm a mathematician. Was there any question while you were in college of A, staying in mathematics or B, not going into academia? No and no, <laughs> but um, because I was so into it by then. And in fact, I went to Berkeley because I wanted to study Hungarian, which was like I did research when I was a junior in high school, like where can I learn Hungarian so I can go to the Budapest semesters in math in Budapest my junior year. Like that's how organized I was. Wow. And I found like... Berkeley had Hungarian offered as a language and I was like, I'm going there. And that's what I did. I was very long-term planner back then. <laughs> I would say like the thing that 
okay, so first of all, I was on the Putnam team in Col- mm-hmm. in Berkeley, and I hated it. So, I, like, it confirmed my hatred of competitions. Um, it made me feel, like, very stupid once a year. And I was like, why am I doing this? Um, I'll stop doing this. Um, and then the other thing is... Um, I, never I, took start- the, I never took the Putnam, so I'm with you there. <laughs> yeah, good for you, you know. So the thing I would say I learned, you know, the lesson I really learned um, in college, um, and this goes to starting a class, which I, I started a class with two other women who were actually graduate students at the time, um, which was a like introduction to proof class at Berkeley. And it still exists. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you a little bit. It, it was obviously needed. Um, what I realized was I was in these classes, which were proof-based classes, like linear algebra, honors linear algebra, or real analysis, basically those first like real proof classes. I was in those classes and I was surrounded by, you know, two different kinds of people. One was um, the people that had never gone to math camp, didn't know how to prove things and were completely overwhelmed. And then there were the group of mostly boys who had gone to math camp and were like, I'm so smart. Why are you guys so stupid? And I was like, dude, like this is not about stupidity. Like anybody could be good at proofs if they practiced, but these people didn't have the, the luck that we did of going to a math camp um, and don't act like that is magic it's not magic it's just practice um and we're lucky and we should acknowledge our luckiness and and we should offer these kids an opportunity to get good at proofs but there was no such thing it was like you just went from calculus without proofs to linear algebra with proofs and there was no introduction to proofs explicitly and it seemed calculated from my perspective to make a bunch of people feel bad and those people were mostly girls and they were and or people of color or or less um you know less privileged white boys I, I, so, do you think it's calculated to make people feel bad or is it just there's a huge disconnect between high school and college it's not obvious to me that the failures on the college side uh, there is a failure on the college side so there but it's not solely on the college side i think it's on the high school side as well i saw this a lot i saw this a lot let in me college say it this way well. there, there was a lot of let me just finish the story, and mm-hmm. I'm what I'm going to describe is the pushback we got. Okay, oh, that's you know, even if it's not the problem, it is a problem, and it's yeah. an un, a largely unacknowledged problem, and that is a problem in itself. So, like, basically, we went to the faculty of the math department, me and these two women, um, Sarah Robinson and Karen Edwards, who were both graduate students in math, and uh, you know, we were like, you know, we should start a proofs class, and the faculty were like, nah. You know, we're, this is a yeah. filtering system. We only want good students. Yeah, filtering, I think, is the right we're word filtering there. filtering by, yeah. by how good they are at math. And I was like, no, it's not about good being good at math. It's being practiced in proofs. And they're like, yeah, we, we don't see the difference. So we were just like, that's terrible. So we yeah. what we did was we like, well, we're going to offer a class anyway. And they were like, okay, you can go ahead and offer it, but it's not going to be for credit. And mm-hmm. we did it anyway. And 60 students showed up for an entire semester. And we taught them proof by introdu- proof by contradiction, proof by induction, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. We did like a basic introduction to proofs class. And at the end of the semester, the faculty were so impressed that they were like, oh, maybe we should give credit to these kids who have been like working really hard all semester. And and now, and then they did and established it as a real class. And now it's a very popular class. And it does bring in like people that didn't go to math camp. Yeah. it's And it's super, super important. I don't think, I don't think it's just proof that's the issue. I think it's solving hard problems in general. And I, I think the filtering thing, I, I believe what the professors might be too disconnected from high school to understand, they don't understand this access issue that you just mentioned, is that people like you and I had access to things 
that taught us how to climb over those difficult walls. Because the first time I encountered those problems, I couldn't do any of them. It wasn't, it wasn't that I could do 10% or 20%. It was zero, none. And it was, yeah, who cares? It was in a math camp, right? That doesn't matter. Right. But the first year of college, oh, it's terrible to have it happen there. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's higher stakes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm still, I get, I feel like you're maybe a nicer person than I am. I still feel <laughs> like a little bit pissed that these professors are like, oh, we just want the good students, you yeah, know? Yeah, that's like, I, it, like at a certain point, you're just like, okay, I, I think what you're saying is unless you are already a math camper, when you yeah. get to college, it's too late. And that's ridiculous. Of course, we have a bunch of students in college who get there not knowing what they want to do with their life. And the idea that it's already closed off to them is, is ludicrous. Yeah, I saw, some, I saw some students suffer that first year in college, get C's in classes and be like, what am I doing? What am I doing? And they're getting awards as major scientists today. And by um, the way, can I just jump in? Like, mm -hmm. there's this, going back to the prepare yourself to get into college, that mindset, that continues uh, for the kids whose yeah. parents are like, do this, do that, do this. Like, it's going to improve your college application. Like, even once you get into college, those kids are still feeling like I need to have my GPA high, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And that prevents them from taking risks in college. So it's it's even worse than than oh they'll struggle but they'll get good at it. No, they won't struggle because they won't they won't take a class where they're worried about C's. And how often have people asked you what your GPA was in college? It's never ever <laughs> happened. But I'll yep. say I also started this class when I got to Barnard, and it's and it's still and it, so it's a Columbia Barnard class, mm -hmm. and it still exists here too. Like I feel like why is that? class not at every single college well you're starting to get to the point where you might have a stage where you can have it happen in more places um so i've been, to I've been tooting this horn for 20 years <laughs> we'll, we'll see all right so you you then had from undergrad you had to grad school uh, so you were certain you were going to go off and be a professor i'm guessing that's my plan yeah at the yeah. time yeah yeah i went to harvard um I worked with Barry Mazur. It was like very exciting moments, like the Fermat's theorem had just been proven. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I did go to Budapest, but I ended up leaving after one semester thinking like, eh, I'm not really a combinatorialist after all, I, but I, I really love elliptic curves. Um, so I got like this idea of like having really, having taste in math. Interesting. Um, and I went into, I went to Harvard. I was blown away at Harvard. It was like, crazy even though i had taken all these graduate classes when i was in berkeley i <laughs> blown away in the sense of oh my goodness uh, we're not in kansas anymore yeah i mean look i i entered um harvard i mean not to g give myself like victimization points i was a harvard graduate student for god's sakes but like i <laughs> entered in 1994 and um like a, it was it was a time when a bunch of Russian mathematicians were escaping oh. and going to they were kind of, kind of being laundered into the math community by being graduate students for a year and then finishing their PhD that they had actually written three years ago in, yeah. in Russia. Yeah. <laughs> so like one of the people that went to Harvard with me was Voivodsky and like he graduated <laughs> in one year and then won the Fields Medal. It was like those are the people I went I was like so called like 
you know, colleagues with. It was outrageous. That's that's. I've heard stories about the Russians coming into grad school in 93, 94, 95 in lots of diff- different disciplines. And they're all very, very similar. Just, oh, my goodness, right. who are these people? <laughs> I know. And it was like it wasn't nobody was saying it out loud. So from my perspective, I was like, oh, my God, are uh-huh. you kidding me? This guy is a professor already. And, <laughs> and that's I was, beautiful. It wasn't wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it was it was crazy hard. Um, it was crazy hard. But like, you know what? Like I w- and it was hard. It really hard. I'm not trying to undersell that. It was there were moments when I was like, I don't know if I can do this. But at the end of the day, I loved math. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. And I think going back to my original complaint about math competitions, I wasn't in it to win. I was in it because I loved the process and I loved the actual, you know, moments of clarity and of understanding something I hadn't understood. Um, so I just kept, kept going and I, I ended up finishing, I ended up, you know, finishing in five years with one year in Princeton, which I hated, hated Princeton. Um, and then, but I did end up finishing, um, and then getting a postdoc at MIT for five years and then ended up at Barnard. Yeah, Princeton always struck me. I was there as an undergrad, as as a place that was designed for undergraduates, but not so well divi- designed for grad students. I think that's right. Yeah. I think as an undergrad at Princeton, I would have found my niche, mm-hmm. but as a graduate student in Princeton, um, I don't know if this is TMI, but as a graduate student, I got so depressed. I was a visiting graduate student mm-hmm. um, that I went to the mental health facility there, and there was like one woman who worked there. <laughs> mm-hmm. she, she was like very overworked, yeah. and I talked to her about being depressed and she was like well if it helps i think i eventually see every female graduate student at princeton and i was like dude yes that does help (laughs) help. this place is horrible this is like the worst place i'm out of here yeah it was not it was was not well structured from a social perspective at least what it looked like to me as an undergraduate for the graduate students for the undergraduates it was it was fine it was great it was like a bubble for for undergrads yeah yeah that's very true so so you, you you finish grad school, you go off into academia, you've described yourself as not being super interested in winning. Why in the world did you leave academia and go into the financial world? Well, I mean, I was incredibly naive is the short version. Um, but I was um, working as a number theorist. I was a, like, I had gotten to where I wanted to get. Like, that's what I planned when I like finished math camp when I was 15. I was like, I'm going to be a math professor. And like, I was a math professor. 10, 20 years later, I was 35 basically. And I was like, actually, this is really slow going. And I publish these papers and they take five years to come out and like nobody reads them. Like if people are interested, they talk to me when I make the results five years before that, you know? <laughs> um, I also was being really leaned on by my department to take up all sorts of um, work of like women's work, if you will. Um, not research do, work, administrative, not research or, work, mm. administrative, like college advising curriculum stuff, you know, and I thought I was maybe having a conspiracy theory until I actually got the offer from DE Shaw and my chairman was like, Oh, we don't want you to leave because we want you to do the curriculum committee and we want you to do the <laughs> advising and the calculus. And I was like, dude, what's in it for me? Yeah. And he had literally nothing to say to me. Um, and I was like, okay, you know what? You got me wrong. I'm not a martyr. <laughs> like I might, I might be good at, at organizational stuff. I am good at organizational stuff, but I don't want to be exploited. I want to be rewarded. I want to be rewarded for my skills. So my naivete was that because in finance you get rewarded for PNL, like you get rewarded in a kind of objective measure, um, that I would, I would do better in that 
in that in that sort of context. Despite the fact not. that it's all about winning. Yeah, and you know what? Of course, I wish I had spoken to you then, because I, you know, now I look back and I'm like, what was I thinking? It was so competitive. It was like the opposite of what I wanted. It wasn't at all objective. I could spend three hours explaining to you why PNL is not at all an objective measure, but I was just naive. Like, fact is, like, here's another naive approach. Like, I wanted. You know, I felt like as an academic in an ivory tower, I was having almost no real impact on the world. And I was like, that was another thing. I was like, I want impact on the world. Like have all these things to say and all these opinions, all this skill and all this education. And I'm not really like I'm speaking to the 15 other people in my field. You know, I want impact. And then like two years later, like fast forward to the end of the, like, to the financial crisis and being working in a hedge fund. I was like, actually, I want <laughs> positive impact. So what was that? How quickly did you get disillusioned in this way? And do you like, see any really fast? So it was, you know, first couple months, you're like, oh, first this culture is very different than grad school, very different than what? Yeah, well, I mean, I immediately let me say it this way. I immediately realized I, that I was weird there. Like, I didn't mind asking stupid questions. And everybody else was like agog at the stupid questions I asked. They were like, oh, my God how could you admit not knowing that? I was like, because I don't know that. And I'm not embarrassed by that. I'm a mathematician. Like we mathematicians ask stupid questions. That's how we learn. It's faster for me to learn if I ask stupid questions. It's, and it's... I was asking questions like, what if, you know, what if our assumption of like infinite liquidity goes away? And everyone was like, you idiot. I was like, fast forward to the financial crisis, the liquidity yeah. did go away. And I was like, yeah, you know, whatever. There were just a lot of assumptions in that culture that did not fit with me. And like part of it was that I was kind of old and I was a woman and, you know, I was this old woman. I mean, it wasn't that old. I was like 34 or 35 or something. But on um, the scale of people heading into the company. Yes. Yeah. Like everybody else was like straight out of grad school or maybe out of a first postdoc. And they were men and they were like they were being hazed. To be honest, it was a hazing culture. And I was already a mother of two. And I was like, I'm not getting hazed. You guys are getting hazed. <laughs> I am the one who creates culture in my family. And I'm not going to be like bending towards yours. So I never did. And I was never really part of it for that reason. I was always an observer. But I kind of enjoyed that. Do you, did you see any sectors of finance that, or, or the trading world that you wouldn't characterize in this, in this sense? Yeah. I only saw Shaw. And well, and then I went into risk. I went into, I like went to risk metrics and I was in risk for a while, but that was like less hardcore in a very real way. Like you weren't like trading. So you mm -hmm. were like, you were doing, you were working on risk models, but I soon realized that that was in its own way, complete crap. Um, and so I left that too. That was a different kind of crap. It was a very different kind of crap, So, but also something I didn't want to be a part of. Day to day, just these two, just to give the listeners some idea of what these jobs actually are. What are you actually doing day to day in these things? So at Shaw, I'm trying to find patterns in trading in a specific mm -hmm. uh, ways. Like I was working in futures. So I was like, I started out in two different projects. I worked with Larry Summers. They were Larry Summers ideas. He had like recently left Harvard and mm -hmm. or left being a president of Harvard, I should say. Mm -hmm. He's still at Harvard. Um, but he was like managing director at DE Shaw. And like his, the first project I worked on was like about the carry trade 
in um, in Asia, um, which is like borrowing yen to buy German marks or euros or whatever. Um, and so we would, I, when I say German marks, like it was already the Euro, Eurozone era, but like I was using inf- data going back to, you know, 1970 or, or, so, or so to figure out what kind of patterns there were, seasonal patterns in these kinds of trades. And could we predict the current market based on those kinds of statistical patterns? So I was just working with data mm-hmm. and, you know, in a careful statistical setup. Was that actually fun? And it was just the dealing It was with totally the... fun. Okay. Oh, my God. I had so much fun. I really liked it. And, like, the, the thinking about how it was actually related to a real thing was, mm-hmm. was really sexy to me. Like, I really did want to have sort of real-world impact. And then it was also fun, by the way, to see the entire <laughs> financial crisis like burned yeah. down from the front row of a seat. It was like really exciting, especially because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in it for the money. I know that sounds in. ridiculous, but like I, I was never going to, I was never a managing director. I was never like worried about getting fired because I was like, whatever, I don't even like this job. <laughs> <laughs> so like there were the, like the men around me were like sweating bullets and yeah. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. So it sounds like your complaints there were more cultural than the actual minute to minute, like the problems Absolutely. you were working. Okay, it's interesting the culture I found you described. It really interesting, really, really interesting. And I, on a on a sort of intellectual nerdy level, I was totally in. Interesting, because I, I my experience here might have been almost the opposite. Um, I the culture was not quite not even close to what you're describing. But then again, I was a 27 year old guy, so maybe I didn't even see it. Uh, mm. which is definitely possible. Um, Where but, were you? You were in I was uh, in, M&A? I was in fixed income, which... Oh, fixed income. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the people you worked with in Futures were in my group doing analytics stuff. They weren't doing... A, they weren't the traders on the fixed income desk. Um, but... Uh, and we we went to 1998 is when everything stopped and you've been anybody out there who knows what long-term capital management is knows what happened happened to us so i got to be on front row seat for some pyrotechnics that got contained by uh by a bailout and maybe had that bailout not happened um we wouldn't have needed another one but that's that's a story for another day wait so how long were you there i was there for a little over four years and yeah, when, my, what year did you leave? I left in 98 or yeah, it was at the end yeah, of 98. Yeah, you know, I think it was a totally different era for the firm yeah. and I'm I totally believe that the culture was different. Yeah. Well, I wonder how different the culture is now. It's been another decade, but you leave you leave Shaw, um you go to Risk Metrics, which is again an interesting an interesting move. I guess you didn't you didn't know a whole lot then about how that stuff was used in in banks. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and like, you know, the first year I worked on the credit default swap, like value at risk model. And it had, you know, it was really fascinating because I learned a whole new, uh, you know, a whole new world credit default swaps. I had been working in futures and these are very different um, instruments that behave very differently and they had not been treated appropriately um, before the crisis, which is one of the reasons like AIG failed so spectacularly. (laughs) So it was a really, really interesting work. Again, I was very fascinated by the work, but the year in of, to my work, I sort of like had a better way of doing risk for credit default swaps. And we got acquired by MSCI. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and they basically MSCI just fired all the researchers 
because they're not interested in research. They only wanted to do sales. So I, I went from research to, um, to account management, which was like really <laughs> interesting. Basically, I was on the hotline. I was like answering the hotline phone. Mm -hmm. I was also like the personal account manager for all the quantitative hedge funds. And that was also interesting because I talked to the hedge funds about how they, how they dealt with risk models, which was interesting to me. Um, but on the, on the hotline, my job was just literally to answer the question of whoever called. And most of the people who called were like banks. Mm -hmm. And the bankers were just, they, they were not, they did not care about what the risk model said, except if the risk model said their risk went up, they did not want the risk to go up. And of course my credit default swap model was like, going to show them the true risk there. Um, so I wasn't at all surprised when I found out that nobody wanted to use my new, my new model. You know what I mean? I right. was like, Oh wait, this isn't about knowing your risk. Sorry. I misunderstood. I thought, I thought better math could solve this problem. It's actually a politics. It, it's problem. a political problem. No, they've, they've yeah. got it. They want to report low risk numbers, even if they're, uh, because most of the time they're going to be right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and if they're not right, somebody will bail them out. Yeah, yeah. Or they'll just, you know, they'll lose their job and get another one. Um, so, exactly. So, yeah, I guess at some point you decide you didn't sign up to be answering the, the hotline anymore. And that's... Actually, I didn't I didn't sign up to be like a, a an ornament. I mean, I really right. felt like, oh, look, a PhD from Harvard, you can trust us. And I was like, wait, I'm adding to your brand? Like, get, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> so you get out of there. Uh, you've been through now. You've been through two of the industries of our time that draw tons of tons of nerds, academia yeah. and the trading world. The third, of course, is the internet. So naturally, you give that a whirl. How did sure. that? How did that happen? Um, we'll also mention that I started my blog right then, right around the um, same time. Yeah, yeah, because I was like, it was kind of like a, hey, academic nerds, don't go into finance. That was like my the thrust of my early Math Bay blogs. Mm -hmm. um, but I needed a job. So I actually, for a time, considered like being a math circle person or doing something mm -hmm. along the lines of math education. And um, I ended up deciding, like, I really, really did like that quant stuff, the data stuff. So I, I became a data scientist very, very, very easily just by saying I was a data scientist, basically. <laughs> um, and I got a job at an ad tech company called Intent Media and just started working, tr like predicting clicks instead of predicting the market. And it was just basically the same work. Mm -hmm. um, and it was interesting. Again, I was fascinated by the work and I helped Intent Media like design a platform of, of modeling and that was super fun and interesting technically. But what was happening at the same time was I was like, I was the only, I was also, again, the oldest person you know, the only woman with children. There were, were other women by now, but like they were young, young women and everybody mm -hmm. there was like, starry-eyed and was like excited for the future of the internet and, and I was like I don't trust anyone at this point <laughs> and um, I just remember there was like a couple turning points one of them was when like one of the people in my company spent an hour explaining why we were not going to honor the do not track requests of the users that we were tracking That's like shocking. even if they said do not track we were just going to not honor it and the, the last line of his one hour excuse was and I think that, you know, if they really thought about it, they would know that they do want us to track them. <laughs> I was just like, what? That is super duper lame. Even if like do not track doesn't make a much sense, like we have to honor it. So it was like that. And then there was this, um, you know, 
as as the, the the time went by, I realized like, you know, the signals I was I was tracking to decide whether somebody was going to buy something, you know, whether somebody was high value or low value. Of course, I could track signals like, did you buy something from us in the past? That was easy. Yeah. But a lot of the other signals were just demographics, like where do you live? What zip code are you? Like what, <laughs> uh, and essentially what, what your race is. There were other ways like saying, what kind of computer did you have? Like how much money do you have? Like are you rich or poor? Are you, you know, black or white? Are you a woman or a man? And those were the strongest signals. Like and it's, and it, was that the seed that led to weapons of mass destruction yeah, later? Yeah, it was. Okay. It was that, like acknowledging to myself that it was demographic. Plus, it was the venture capitalist who came to my company and who said explicitly to us all that he was looking forward to the moment when all he would ever see on tailored ads was trips to Aruba and jet skis, and he would never have to see another University of Phoenix ad because they weren't for people like him. And he said it like really smugly, and people laughed. And I was like, what, University mm. of Phoenix ads, I guess they're for poor black women. And that's exactly what they are for. And I was like, oh, my God, this is actually the entire point. The entire point of tailored ads is to demographically, like, strat you know, stratify our culture and offer good things to lucky white men and bad things, predatory things to unlucky black women. Uh, and it was just like, I'm part of this. Yet again, I'm finding myself part of something I don't want to be part of. And that's when I started sort of like looking at the dark side mm -hmm. and I started blogging. I had already been blogging, but I was like blogging every day at that point. And I was like, here's what I'm worried about. And here's some creepy algorithms that seem to double down on racism or double down on classism. And then once I started writing like lists of creepy algorithms, my wonderful blog readers, you know, showed me all sorts of other ones. And I was like, Holy crap, yeah, this is not just one-offs. This is like the way it's working now. And it's like in a life, people will just come across more and more and more of these decisions that are just saying, hey, demographically speaking, are you lucky or unlucky? Because if you're lucky, we're going to give you options. And if you're unlucky, we're going to cut you off. And it was like, this isn't just predicting the future. This is causing the future. So that's that's the book. We'll dive into that in just a minute, because that's obviously that's I mean, that's super, super interesting, these feedback loops. But before we do that, before we jump into the thing that you're still doing and that seems to really resonate with you. Were there any clues or can you give our students any ideas on how they might have, like you spent, I don't know, six, six years, seven years in these at, at the financial jobs and the internet job. Could you have known these things faster? I don't know. I mean, obviously probably, but I wasn't, you know, it was a almost, it wasn't my job to know these things. This is like mm -hmm. something I, I think it's fair to say that I was like trying not to know in order to live with myself. And part of that was the day to day was actually interesting. Yeah, I was, I had a job. I had kids. By then I had three kids. Mm -hmm. I was a busy hurt person. Um, and it was one of those things that crept up on me at night, to be honest. Like I started having trouble sleeping. That's when I knew I had to quit a job, mm -hmm. um, was when I was like, pit of my stomach I can't sleep this is bothering me and I don't want to think about it but I have to because I I can't sleep okay and you don't see a way you could have known that known the things that you weren't supposed to know 
before you were in the middle of it. And is that just a function of age? Yeah, I mean, what do you mean? A function of age of you don't have the experience. Like now, right now, if you were to take a new position somewhere, oh, you would probably yeah. think about it much more deeply about about the long-term impacts or the deeper yeah. impacts, these sorts of things, given the experiences you've had. So true. Yeah. And I would, I would also suggest that I might not even be able to take a job. Like, you know, I've, I've interviewed for plenty of jobs that I'm like, actually, I can't do this. And I say that in the interview, <laughs> I'm like the That's worst fair. person. So what's a but job? I, you... I, yeah, I, I can read, I can read it. I can like, I can already like, it's easy for me now to anticipate the stuff that I'm going to have trouble sleeping over. So what does a job look like that you wouldn't have trouble sleeping over? It's really, really hard. And that's why I started a company because I, I'm like, that's, I kind of can't imagine following somebody else's vision at this point. Like I need to, I need to be the vision and, and it has to be around um, making things better. It has to be around like, flipping the script from making lucky people unlucky, you know, making lucky people luckier and unlucky people unluckier to the opposite. Like make, let's make unlucky people luckier. Um, and what does that look like? It totally depends. Like one of the things is that there's all sorts of um, companies that are talking or, or institutes thinking about ethics and artificial intelligence. <clears throat> My, you know, and I'm glad there's a bunch of things happening. It's really exciting. But like when I talk to any particular person I often come away thinking oh they think they had the silver bullet answer to this and it's much more complicated than that it's always more um, complicated <laughs> yeah so it's like I'm stuck because I yeah. have very high standards but I also don't want to I don't want to drink anybody's Kool-Aid anymore all right so let's talk about the path to this realization that you're just talking about here and I think the writing is Oh, well, you're going to tell me. Was writing the way that you started to really find this path? Writing your blog and... Yeah, I think yeah. the blog. I think yeah. the blog was huge. And it was not just... It was... I mean, it's thinking. It's always thinking. Mm -hmm. That's always the way. But but you think better when you blog because you say something. And people, if you're lucky like I was people read it and they react to it and they're saying, no, you're wrong. And it's just like I was saying earlier, when you do, when you do math, you learn, you learn faster when you ask dumb questions. You're wrong. So, right. and it's like so much more efficient to be told you're wrong. And it's also more efficient to be told you're right because then you can move on and you can evolve, you can evolve your thinking. Um, and that has, that was like the number one thing is that I was just like, I'm not going to dwell on this, this like maybe concern I have, I'm going to say, I'm concerned about this. And then people are going to be like, you should be, or no, you don't have to be because of such and such, but mostly it was, you should be. And as soon as you have admitted to the world that you're concerned and people have responded, like you should be concerned, then, you know, it's actually your response. You've become a responsible person. Then you're like, I'm responsible to do something about this rather than just like, I'm not an observer. I'm anymore. So how did you get traction? where did you get all these readers? It was the, you know, it was the heyday of blogs. That's I have to true. say, like, I was lucky. I was just, I was lucky so many times in a row. You know, sometimes people are like, how do I do what you did? And I'm like, there's no way to reenact what I did. I mean, I, I joined finance when they were letting mathematicians who didn't know anything about finance join finance. That doesn't happen anymore. I joined data science when 
there was no such thing as a data science master's program. I'm not so sure that the mathematicians going into finance without knowing anything has stopped. <laughs> I think that's. Oh, really? I think that's still the mo. But anyway. Keep okay. Going. Well, but I do think the standards have have changed. Is what I'm saying. And then I, you know, I wrote a book for no good reason. I'll add, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> like there was no reason for me to think I could write a book. I just felt like I had to. So this I just is... felt like personally responsible to do something. This is the weapons of math destruction you're talking about yeah. here. Talk about well, that. Well, actually, I wrote a sec. I wrote a, another book before the, that. Disorder. I wrote doing data science for O'Reilly. Okay. A tech, a technical data science book, and in some part because I wanted to, just know what it was like to write a book, um, and it it didn't really teach me that because it's, it's a very different experience different. writing a trade book versus a technical book, but also because I just wanted the credentialing to be like, I wrote the book on data science. So, so you should read this book about the dark side of big data. Okay. So that was the plan going in, do the O'Reilly book yeah. to set up the other yeah. book. Cause you're yeah. the long-term planner. Very That's nice. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So what was, what was the process of, of writing weapons of math destruction? Oh my God. It was so, it was painful. It was super painful. I mean, it was deeply, deeply like it's some, you know, it was started out really exciting. I found, I had an agent who liked the idea I got, I sold my proposal eventually. That was ex really exciting. And then like the tr reality set in and it just became very painful. All right. So let and, me take a step back here. You had yeah. this all lined up before you started writing or you had the writing on your blog, but you didn't have a book. I, I sold my book before I quit my job. No, that's not true. No, I quit my job first. I quit my job. Oh my God. Yeah. I quit my job and I started, I was still writing my proposal. And then I got a sort of, um, a, another job that to be honest, I didn't work very hard at <laughs> while I was writing um, mm -hmm. that O'Reilly book. And then I sold, as I was finishing the O'Reilly book, I sold my, my uh, weapons book. Okay. Um, and, you know, I get money for that. But, it, and it seemed like a lot of money at the time, but it really wasn't because writing a book is much, much more work than the amount of money you're getting paid for it. <laughs> and it, 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 like, let me put it this way. Like yeah. I thought I had sold a book that was going to use thought experiments to speculate on the kind of stuff that was happening. Mm -hmm. And my editor who had bought my book was like, no, I don't want any speculation. You need to prove everything and you need blood on every page. And I was like, but the nature of algorithmic harm is that people don't even know they're being um, scored. So how could mm -hmm. they possibly know that they've been misscored and that they've lost a job opportunity or they've been put in prison extra time if they don't understand that, that, that there's a score. And she was like, I don't care, but just do it. <laughs> so there was like a few months where I was like convinced that there was no, this was an unwritable book. So um, you had what, this idea where you're going to be spitting ideas all over the pages, but without the concrete stuff that's all throughout I mean, the book. I, I didn't say it to myself that way, but yeah. yes, that's what exactly It was going to be like blogging. You were going to sit there and you're just going to write it on yeah. your free, take a few hours a day and knock yeah, it off in exactly. a few months. And then well, I, I didn't think it was going to be knocked off, to be clear. <laughs> but I, yeah. I did think that I did think that like my argument style would have been mostly a thought experiment because I'm like, of course, you can't prove most most of these things. Right. Um, so but, you know, basically what happened is I had a 
moment of deep depression. And then I woke up, I was actually visiting my in-laws with my family in Utrecht in the Netherlands, my husband's Mm -hmm. Dutch. And I just woke up, I was jet lagged. I woke up at like four in the morning or something. And I just wrote out, this is very nerdy. (laughs) I wrote out the, the outline of the book that would exist if there was a book that could be written the way my editor wanted it to be written. So I wrote it as sort of like a theoretical book Mm -hmm. outline. I was like, this would be the book if I could find all the blood that she wants me to smear on the pages. And then I just set about like finding the blood for each of those pages. And did that work? Yeah. Because that shows what the book looks like. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what, you know, eventually I did find someone who got unfairly denied a job Mm-hmm. Um, based on a scoring system that is secret to almost everyone, but he happened to to see what was happening. You know what I mean? It was just yeah. like pure miraculous luck. So that's like reporters. For him and for me. That was like reporter sleuthing. You did was your blog instrumental in finding. To be honest, these? like I owe a huge amount of debt to the reporters who actually found these people. I just found the report. The report, like you know, I found the our articles. I see. Um, and I did interview the people. Um, but it was sleuthing in the sense of like, I didn't know those, those articles existed. I had to find them. Um, and then I had to develop a theory around it and I had to sort of make it consistent and like build it up and all that stuff. That's how books work. Did you have the title already? Yes. Okay. It's, it's, it's a great title. So thank you. (laughs) Now, um, I want to talk in more detail about the book now, because as you probably know, we at AOPS, we at AOPS teach a lot of the people who will be at risk of creating one of these weapons of mass destruction in the next generation. So first, I want you to explain what a weapon of mass destruction is. Um, a weapon of mass destruction is an algorithm that's important, secret, and unfair, destructive. Um, so it's important. It's being used for a lot of people for important decisions. It's secret. Either they don't understand their score because it's, it's almost always a score. Um, it's in fact, it's almost always a really stupid system. If you think about it, like if you get a high enough score, then you get an option like a job or a credit card or a good insurance plan. And if you don't get high enough score, you don't get that option or you get a worse credit card or a worse insurance plan or something like that. Um, so it's, it's it happening to a lot of people. It's secret and it's unfair. Like people, people's options are denied them that they have a right to. And just as an observation throughout the book, I noticed that it's not just destructive for individuals. It's also like under, it's destructive for society. It creates these feedback loops, as you mentioned, um, that like make, and I, 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 I've mentioned make lucky people luckier, make unlucky people unluckier sort of sort of spirals out from itself in, in various ways. And sometimes that happens because it is at scale. Like it's this one algorithm that's being used at huge scale, like the Google search algorithm or the Facebook newsfeed algorithm. Or sometimes it's because it's not at scale, but it's very, very similar to other things that are also being used in similar ways. And so it's kind of like it's at scale. Right. And that would be like things like HR analytics, like algorithms that decide who gets a job and stuff like that. Yeah. I I think the negative feedback loop that you highlight in several places in the book is the most uh, terrifying and maybe for people hardest to understand sort of thing that this hurts the person now, but in a way that's going to hurt them again later and again later and again later. Um, and I think that's something that uh, well, AOP students would maybe understand pretty intuitively once it's explained to them, but they need to have it shown to them that these things exist. How did the book gain traction? Like, how did that take off? 
Well, I mean, I like to think of it as like a good book. So it gains traction because people like it and they recommend it to their friends. And I think that's true. Um, I also was very lucky because um, my editor really loved the book and, and the publishing house, Random House, really got behind it marketing wise. Okay. And there's a whole field of data science just devoted to how publishers sell books. Um, mm. And, you know, they put a lot of money into it is the answer. And then they get their money back if it works. And so they do things like, you know, they have a bunch of people whose job it is, the publicist, whose job mm. it is to get me on NPR and to get me uh, to help me find a, an, a, a guardian op-ed or something along those lines. Yep. Then they also do things as explicit as like buying the the slots near the door of like Barnes and Nobles. So Barnes and Nobles sells those table okay. slots. Right. Um, so it's all sorts of things, but they did it for me. So there was a whole ma mass marketing machine behind my book. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I want to be completely honest about that because there's plenty of really good books that never, yeah. never sell well. Yeah. You're describing and, another feedback loop. <laughs> yep. That's, that's right. <laughs> this is it's, the lucky yeah. getting luckier. Yep. Um, absolutely. You could argue that this is also a destructive feedback loop, but you know, it's one that I have personally benefited from. Yeah. I mean, although there's this positive side, it's not so clear what the negative side is on the other end of it, but uh, it's not as clear as say the HR stuff that you discuss in the book or the college right. rankings, which are, are maddening. So do you think your editor was right in pressing you in a different direction for the book given? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she was. And she, you know, and by the way, she just bought my, an, another book I'm writing. So I, I'm, I owe her so much at the time I really hated her. <laughs> like I really was like, this is unfair. And like, yeah. it's a bait and switch. And like, I, and there's so many ways you can hate your editor, but mm -hmm. she's really good at her job. So how many people have read the book and are they the right people? I have no idea, but a lot. And it's been translated into lots of different mm -hmm. languages. And I go to other countries and like, it's exciting to meet people who've read it. And you know, and and even if it's in English, I went to New Zealand a couple of weeks ago and met somebody who's doing data inside the government in New Zealand, and like they are all reading my book, and I've like never been to New Zealand before, and I meet a bunch of people who've read my book, and it's pretty amazing. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it is. It's really really awesome. Do you get the sense that you're reaching people who don't already agree with you, or are you mainly? I do. I, uh, so there's lots of different audiences. Mm -hmm. So there's um, the people who agree with me. You know, there's like techie leftists. Let's call mm -hmm. them techie leftists. Um, and they kind of know what I'm talking about. They've had similar suspicions. They haven't thought it through as much. They're glad I did. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then there's like, I would call like the NPR crowd who are like, oh, I just, I never thought about this. And, but now that you say it, it obviously makes sense. And thank you for it. You know? Mm -hmm. And then there's, and you know, so they don't know it already. They really don't. They, they're they like probably the people that kind of thought the U.S. News and World Report college ranking model was great. And now they're like, oh, I can see why it's not perfect. But they're already primed to believe that the world is designed to hose certain people and to uplift other people. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So they are leftists. That's why I chose the, the phrase NPR. I mean, to be so, fair, there are a lot of libertarians that believe these things, too. And I don't know which direction you put a libertarian on the left right scale but still well anyway, that's actually going. was going to be my third group was like libertarians, yeah, libertarians. working in um finance or or ad tech like because i've talked to lots of people 
who I would call libertarian and I wouldn't yeah. call them left or right. I would call them libertarian. Yeah. Um, it's a different dimension. Um, and you know, I've, I've had really interesting conversations with a bunch of libertarians who've read my book. And a lot of them will be like, I like a lot of the things you say. I think you're too political at times. And then I'll be like, okay, so what particular line did you disagree with? And sometimes they come up with some things. Sometimes they don't. I think it's um, the vocabulary. Uh, honestly, like there's a whole one whole chapter of your book where you're using the word corporation that if you would use the word employer would have had a much would have had a bigger audience. Interesting. Because uh, you use the word corporation, which is obviously a leftist loaded word when you use, and you're is insane. it really? Oh, yeah. When you say corporation, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to hear, oh, this person hates the free market. It's anti-capitalist, blah, 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 blah. And if and your example is a university that's a nonprofit university, you use the word employer and all of that a lot of that kind of baggage goes away that the... I thought the I thought like it, like corporations are people isn't that like a positive spin on corporation that is embraced um I think when you're using the word corporation people are going to hear free market I might be wrong but no no I believe uh, yeah, you yeah it's not something I you know what I'm going to make you um look at my next book before it comes out I would to love see if to I'm... I would love to I'm excited see if I'm to. like coding, <laughs> coding for the left too much, because I mean, my goal was not to do so. Right. My goal was right. to like actually reach, you know, the CEOs of Facebook and Google like who are definitely liber libertarian. Um, and like so I wanted it to be readable and sort of approachable and and persuasive even to people who aren't necessarily on the left. Have you gotten any calls from those people? Nope. Not yet. No, I haven't. I mean, <laughs> and the reason is because it, and I should, I should be clear. I've have had co private conversations with some of them. Mm -hmm. um, and their, their private conversations are basically like this. We're living in the era of plausible deniability. Right. And that's going to end. So like, and, and we don't, we don't want it to end any sooner than we have to, which is to say like the problems you're pointing out are, are acknowledged, but we are not going to formally acknowledge them uh, because we don't have to. Yeah, and they don't have a solution. Um, and there is no solution. I yeah. mean, that's I mean, that's one of my biggest pet peeves right now is like I, you know, on Twitter, which I'm on, which is probably a mistake. I'm not on Instagram or Facebook, but I am on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I see these things last week, like, oh, so and so has found an AI that will determine whether an article is misinformation or not. Like, no, not true. <laughs> Um, let's no stop pretending that artificial intelligence can solve the problems that artificial intelligence has created. Right. Right. And, and, these... and the people who own AI do not want this conversation to be real. Yeah. I mean, nobody wants skepticism about their work, uh, particularly when it's that lucrative. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're running short on time. I, there, I, we could go on and on and on, but I want to wrap up. I want to give you the floor, the, some time to talk about uh, you're a long-term planner, so you're already planning things, you're doing things. I'd like to hear more about that and any words of wisdom you can share uh, with our students because you're, you're such an interesting case. You've followed so many different paths. Um, so the floor is yours. Oh, thanks. Well, I'll first start out by saying I have stopped being a long-term planner. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I want to write this new book. Um, I have no idea if it's going to be a good book and whether anybody will read it. Um, but it is interesting to me. Um, and it's about shame as a social mechanism. And I know that sounds like a sociology book, but I'm not a sociologist and it's not going to read like a sociology book. It's really about um, like shame as a social mechanism. Like when does, when does outrage dissipate shame? 
um, you know, and like thought experiments, nerdy thought experiments. Um, and, and the goal of that is to sort of have a somewhat objective lens to sort of read what's actually happening in the world and the, the power that exists in the world. Long story short, I'm doing something which is like a massive, massive experiment that is an intellectual challenge that is a threat to my existence because it might be a failure, but it's like exciting to me. So I'm doing it. And that if I'm going to leave you guys with anything is that you got to go straight towards and through um, uh, whatever excites you the most intellectually, um, because that's going to be what you end up, you know, never regretting. I have no regrets even though I've made a huge number of mistakes and it's because when I figured out their mistakes, I moved away, you know, just, just keep going is, is the, is the, is my advice and keep going towards the thing that scares you. Um, you know, what the best piece of advice I ever got was my friend, Jordan Ellenberg, who, who's also an author and a mathematician, by the way, he wrote, um, how not to be wrong. I hope you've interviewed him. Yeah. He's, he's on my list. I know, I know Jordan, I know him in high school. Right. So this is his advice to me in, in grad school. D- make the decision that you would make if you weren't insecure. And it really, really clarifies if you're trying to make a decision like, what if I were not insecure? And then you're like, oh, obviously I would do this. And like, do, do it. Just pretend for that moment that you're not insecure and do it. That's fantastic. Um, my guest today has been Kathy O'Neill. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Aftermath. You can find show notes for this and other episodes on our website at aops.com slash aftermath. We want more people to discover this podcast, so if you like this episode, please take a moment to share it with others you think will enjoy it. Then head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. I'm Richard Rusick. See you next time. Aftermath is brought to you by Art of Problem Solving, through which we've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of thousands of eager math students around the world. Our textbooks, online school, in-person learning centers, and various online resources empower students to develop the skills they'll need for success at top-tier universities and in internationally competitive careers. Come check us out at aops.com.